This is section four of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. Section four. Territorial Enterprise. February 1863. Territorial Enterprise. Mid-February 1863. The Spanish. We slide down into the Spanish mine yesterday to look after the rich strike which was made there lately. This in the time before elevators, when, as in the salt mines in Austria, one slides down a polished wooden banister on a waxed leather apron to reduce the heat. It is a great ride down, but a long hike back up. Editor. We found things going on at about their usual gait and the general appearance of the mine in no respect differing from what it was before the recent flood. A few inches of water still remain in the lower gallery, but it interferes with nobody, and can be easily bailed out whenever it may be deemed necessary. Every department of the Spanish mine is now in first-class working order, owing to the able management of the general superintendent, Mr. J. P. Corrigan the slight damage done by the inundation having been thoroughly repaired in the matter of bracing and timbering the mine an improvement upon the old plan has lately been added which makes a large saving in the bill of expenses this improvement consists in building the stations wider and higher and filling up a wall of them here and there with refuse rock expenses are not only lightened thus but such walls never rot, are never in danger of caving, need never be removed, and are altogether the strongest supports that a mine can have. Intelligent people can understand now that about a hundred dollars a day may be saved in this way, without even taking into consideration the costly job of re-timbering every two or three years, which is rendered unnecessary by it and by way of driving the proposition into heads like the unreliables which is filled with oysters instead of brains we will say that by building these walls you are saved the time and labor of lowering heavy timbers three hundred feet into the earth and hoisting up refuse rock the same distance for you can leave the one in the woods and pile the other into boxed-up stations as fast as you can dig it out however it is time to speak of the rich strike now. This charming spot is two hundred and forty feet below the surface of the earth. It extends across the entire width of the ledge, from twenty-five to thirty feet, and has been excavated some twenty feet on the length of the lead, and to the depth of twenty-one feet. How much deeper it reaches no man knoweth. The face of the walls is of a dark blue color, sparkling with pyrites, or sulphurets, or something, and beautifully marbled, with little crooked streaks of lightning as white as loaf-sugar. This mass of richness pays from eight to twelve hundred dollars a ton, just as it is taken from the ledge, without sorting. Twenty thousand dollars' worth of it was hoisted out of the mine last Saturday, about two hundred and fifty tons have been taken out altogether. The hoisting apparatus is about perfect. When put to its best speed, it can bail out somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred and fifty tons of rock in daylight. The rich ore we have been talking about is sacked up as soon as it reaches the surface of the territory, and shipped off to the company's mill, 
the Silver State, at Empire City. The Silver State is a forty-stamp arrangement, with a thundering chimney to it, which anyone has noticed who has traveled from here to Carson. Mr. Dorsey is the superintendent, and Mr. Jannon, assayer. Territorial Enterprise, February 5, 1863. Letter from Carson. Carson, Tuesday night. Editors, Enterprise. I received the following atrocious document in the morning I arrived here. It is from that abandoned profligate, the Unreliable, and I think it speaks for itself. Carson City, Thursday morning. To the Unreliable, Sir, observing the driver of the Virginia stage hunting after you this morning, in order to collect his fare, I infer you are in town. In the paper which you represent, I noticed an article which I took to be an effusion of your muddled brain, stating that I had cabbaged a number of valuable articles from you the night I took you out of the streets in Washoe City, and permitted you to occupy my bed. I take this opportunity to inform you that I will compensate you at the rate of twenty dollars per head for every one of those valuables that I received from you, providing you will relieve me of their presence. This offer can either be accepted or rejected on your part, but, providing you don't see proper to accept it, you had better procure enough lumber to make a box four by eight, and have it made as early as possible. Judge Dixon will arrange the preliminaries if you don't accede. An early reply is expected by Reliable. Not satisfied with wounding my feelings by making the most extraordinary references and allusions in the above note, he even sent me a challenge to fight in the same envelope with it, hoping to work upon my fears and drive me from the country by intimidation. But I was not to be frightened. I shall remain in the territory. I guessed his object at once, and determined to accept his challenge, choose weapons and things, and scare him instead of being scared myself. I wrote a stern reply to him, and offered him mortal combat with boot-jacks at a hundred yards. The effect was more agreeable than I could have hoped for. His hair turned black in a single night, from excess of fear. Then he went into a fit of melancholy, and while it lasted he did nothing but sigh and sob, and snuffle and slobber, and blow his nose on his coat-tail, and say, he wished he was in the quiet tomb. Finally, he said he would commit suicide. He would say farewell to the cold, cold world, with its cares and troubles, and go and sleep with his fathers in perdition. Then rose up this young man, and threw his demijohn out of the window, and took a glass of pure water, and drained it to the very, very dregs. And then he fell on the floor in spasms. Dr. Jadder was called in, and as soon as he found that the cuss was poisoned, he rushed down to the Magnolia Saloon and got the antidote, and poured it down him. As he was drawing his last breath, he scented the brandy, and lingered yet a while upon the earth to take a drink with the boys. But for this he would have been no more, and possibly a good deal less, in another moment. So he survived, but he has been in a mighty precarious condition ever since. I have been up to see how he was getting along two or three times a day. He is very low. He lies there in silence, and hour after hour he appears to be absorbed in tracing out the figures in the wallpaper. 
he is not changed in the least though his face looks just as natural as anything could be there is no more expression in it than a turnip but he is a very sick man i was up there a while ago and i could see that his friends had begun to entertain hopes that he would not get over it as soon as i saw that all my enmity vanished i even felt like doing the poor unreliable a kindness and showing him too how my feelings towards him had changed so i went and bought him a beautiful coffin and carried it up and set it down on his bed and told him to climb in when his time was up well sir you never saw a man so affected by a little act of kindness as he was by that he let off a sort of war-whoop and went to kicking things around like a crazy man and he foamed at the mouth and went out of one fit and into another faster than i could take them down in my notebook i have got thirteen down though and i know he must have had two or three before i could find my pencil i actually believe he would have had a thousand if that old fool who nurses him hadn't thrown the coffin out of the window and threatened to serve me in the same way if i didn't leave i left of course under the circumstances and i learned that although the patient was getting better a moment before this circumstance he got a good deal worse immediately afterward they say he lies in a sort of stupor now and if they cannot rally him he is gone in as it were they may take their own course now though and use their own judgment i shall not go near them again although i think i could rally him with another coffin i did not return to virginia yesterday on account of the wedding the parties were hon james h sturtevant one of the first paiutes of nevada and miss emma curry daughter of hon a curry who also claims that his is a paiute family of high antiquity curry conducted the wedding arrangements himself and invited none but paiutes this interfered with me a good deal however as i had heard it reported that a marriage was threatened i felt it my duty to go down there and find out the facts in the case they said i might stay as it was me the permission was unnecessary though i calculated to do that anyhow i promised not to say anything about the wedding and i regard that promise as sacred my word is as good as my bond at three o'clock in the afternoon all the paiutes went upstairs to the old hall of representatives in curry's house preceded by the bride and groom and the bride's maids and groomsmen miss joe perkins and miss nettie curry and hon john h mills and william m gillespie and followed by myself and the fiddlers the fiddles were tuned up three quadrille sets were formed on the floor father bennett advanced and touched off the high contracting parties with the hymeneal torch married them you know and at the word of command from curry the fiddle-bows were set in motion and the plain quadrilles turned loose thereupon some of the most responsible dancing ensued that you ever saw in your life the dance that tam o'shanter witnessed was slow in comparison to it they kept it up for six hours and then they carried out the exhausted musicians on a shutter and went down to supper i know they had a fine supper and plenty of it but i do not know how much else they drank so much champagne around me that i got confused and lost the hang of things as it were mills and musser and sturtevant and curry got to making speeches and i got to looking at the bride and bridesmaids they looked uncommonly handsome and finally i fell into a sort of trance 
when i recovered from it the brave musicians were all right again and the dance was ready to commence they went to slinging plain quadrilles around as lively as ever and never rested again until nearly midnight when the dancers all broke down and the party broke up it was all mighty pleasant and jolly and sociable and i wished to thunder i was married myself i took a large slab of the bridal cake home with me to dream on and dreamt that i was still a single man and likely to remain so if i live and nothing happens which has given me a greater confidence in dreams than i ever felt before i cordially wish the newly married couple all kinds of happiness and posterity though richardson's case was continued to the next term of the district court last thursday and the prisoner admitted to bail in the sum of ten thousand dollars seven thousand dollars on the charge of murder the killing of con mason and three thousand dollars on the charge of highway robbery three new mining companies filed their certificates of incorporation in the county clerk's and territorial secretary's offices last saturday their ledges are located in the new brown and murphy district in lyon county the names etc of the new companies are as follows jenny v thompson g and s m company capital stock two hundred and twenty thousand dollars in two thousand two hundred shares of one hundred dollars each byron g and s m company same number of shares etc lyon g and s company capital stock two hundred and thirty thousand dollars in two thousand three hundred shares of one hundred dollars each the following gentlemen are trustees of all three companies c l newton j d thompson j ball g c haswell and william milliken the principal offices of the companies are in carson city mark twain territorial enterprise february eighth eighteen sixty three letter from carson carson thursday morning editors enterprise the community were taken by surprise last night by the marriage of dr j h wayman and mrs m a ormsby strategy did it john k trumbo lured the people to a party at his house and corralled them and in the meantime acting governor clemens proceeded to the bride's dwelling and consolidated the happy couple under the name and style of mr and mrs wayman with a life charter perpetual succession unlimited marital privileges principal place of business at ho blast those gold and silver mining incorporations i have compiled a long list of them from the territorial secretary's books this morning and their infernal technicalities keep slipping from my pen when i ought to be writing graceful poetical things after the marriage the high contracting parties and the witnesses there assembled adjourned to mr trumbo's house the ways of the unreliable are past finding out his instincts always prompt him to go where he is not wanted particularly if anything of an unusual nature is on foot therefore he was present and saw those wedding ceremonies through the parlor windows he climbed up behind dr wayman's coach and rode up to trumbo's this shows that his faculties were not affected by his recent illness when the bride and groom entered the parlor he went in with them bowing and scraping and smiling in his imbecile way and attempting to pass himself off for the principal groomsman i never saw such an awkward ungainly lout in my life he had on a pair of jack wilkes pantaloons 
and a swallowtail coat belonging to Lytle, Shermerhorn's boy, and they fitted him as neatly as an elephant's hide would fit a poodle-dog. I would be ashamed to appear in any parlor in such a costume. It never enters his head to be ashamed of anything, though. It would have killed me with mortification to parade around there as he did, and have people stepping on my coat-tail every moment. As soon as the guests found out who he was, they kept out of his way as well as they could. But there were so many gentlemen and ladies present that he was never at a loss for somebody to pester with his disgusting familiarity. He worried them from the parlor to the sitting-room, and from thence to the dancing-hall, and then proceeded upstairs to see if he could find any more people to stampede. He found Fred Turner, and stayed with him until he was informed that he could have nothing more to eat or drink in that part of the house. He went back to the dancing-hall then, but he carried away a codfish under one arm, and Mr. Curry's plug hat full of sauerkraut under the other. He posted himself right where he could be most in the way, and fell to eating as comfortably as if he were boarding with Trumbo by the week. They bothered him some, though, because every time the order came to all promenade, the dancers would sweep past him and knock his codfish out of his hands and spill his sauerkraut. He was the most loathsome sight I ever saw. He turned everybody's stomach but his own. It makes no difference to him, either, what he eats when hungry. I believe he would have eaten a corpse last night, if he had had one. Finally Curry came and took his hat away from him, and tore one of his coat-tails off, and threatened to thresh him with it, and that checked his appetite for a moment. Instead of sneaking out of the house, then, as anybody would have done who had any self-respect, he shoved his codfish into the pocket of his solitary coat-tail, leaving at least eight inches of it sticking out, and crowded himself into a double quadrille. He had it all to himself pretty soon, because the order, "'Gentlemen to the right,' came, and he passed from one lady to another around the room, and wilted each and every one of them with the horrible fragrance of his breath. Even Trumbo himself fainted. Then the unreliable, with a placid expression of satisfaction upon his countenance, marched forth and swept the parlors like a pestilence. When the guests had been persecuted as long as they could stand, though, they got him to drink some kerosene oil which neutralized the sauerkraut and codfish, and restored his breath to about its usual state, or even improved it, perhaps, for it generally smells like a hospital. The unreliable interfered with Colonel Musser when he was singing the Peanut Song. He bothered William Patterson, Esquire, when that baritone was singing, Ever of Thee I'm Fondly Dreaming. He interrupted Epstein when he was playing on the piano. He followed the bride and bridegroom from place to place, like an evil spirit, and he managed to keep himself and his coat-tail eternally in the way. I did hope that he would stay away from the supper-table, but I hoped against an impossibility. He was the first one there, and had choice of seats also, because he told Mr. Trumbo he was a groomsman, and not only that, but he made him believe also that Dr. Wayman was his uncle. Then he sailed into the ice-cream and champagne, and cakes and things, at his usual starvation gait, and he would infallibly have created a famine if Trumbo had not been particularly well fortified with provisions. There is one circumstance connected with the Unreliable's career last night which it pains me to mention, but I feel that it is my duty to do it. I shall cut the melancholy fact as short as possible, however, 
seventeen silver spoons, a new testament, and a gridiron were missed after supper. They were found upon the unreliable's person when he was in the act of going out at the back door. Singing and dancing commenced at seven o'clock in the evening, and were kept up with unabated fury until half-past one in the morning, when the jolly company put on each other's hats and bonnets and wandered home, mighty well satisfied with Trumbo's corn-shucking, as he called it. Well, you were particularly bitter about the extra session yesterday morning, and with very small cause, too, it seems to me. You rush in desperately and call out all the fire-engines in the universe, and, lo, there is nothing but a chunk of harmless fox-fire to squirt at after all. You slash away right and left at the lawyers, just as if they were not human like other people, subject to the same accidents of fortune and circumstances, moved by the same springs of action, and honest or dishonest according to the nature which God Almighty endowed them with. Stuff! You talk like a wooden man. A man's profession has but little to do with his moral character. If we had as many preachers as lawyers, you would find it mixed as to which occupation could muster the most rascals. Then you pitch into the legislators, and say that, with two or three exceptions, they are men who failed to complete their programs of rascality, etc. Humbug! They never commenced with any such program. I reported their proceedings. I was behind the scenes, and I know. I talk sweepingly, perhaps. So do you, in that wild sentence. There might have been two or three first-class rascals in the legislature. I have that number in my eye at the present moment. But the balance were fully as honest as you, and considerably more so than me. I could prove this by simply reminding you of their names. Run over the list, and see if there are not some very respectable names on it. I have acknowledged that there were several scoundrels in the legislature, but such a number, in as large a body as the last assembly, could carry no measure, you know, and the men I am thinking of couldn't even influence one. The Lord originally intended them to do transportation duty in a jackass train, I think. And then, how you talk about the pecuniary wants of our legislators. Their hungry wallets yearn for a second assault on the greenbacks and franchises of the territory. That is humbug also. Take the House, for instance. I can name you fifteen members of that body whose pecuniary condition is very comfortable, who stand in no more pressing need of territorial greenbacks than you do of another leg. And I can name you half a dozen others who are not suffering for food and raiment, and whom Providence will be able to take care of, I think, without bringing an extra session of the Nevada legislature to pass. You talk like a wooden man, I tell you. Why, there are not enough territorial greenbacks in the Secretary's office and the territorial treasury put together to start a wholesale peanut stand with. And why should thirty-nine legislators want to neglect their business to go to Carson and gobble up and divide such a pittance? Bosh! Somebody made a blunder. Somebody did a piece of rascality. It was not the legislators. Yet only they can set the matter right. And if they want to go back to the Capitol and do it, it is rather a credit to them than a dishonor. I cannot see anything very criminal in this conduct of theirs. You are too brash, you know. That is what is the matter with you. 
You say you heard a report that the acting governor had decided to call an extra session. Well, what if you did? Don't you suppose that, being here, at the seat of government, I would naturally know a good deal more about it than anybody's reports? Reports lie. I do not. Why didn't you ask me for information? I always have an abundance of the article on hand. I will give you some now. The acting governor has not decided to call an extra session. He is not seriously thinking of such a thing at present. He is not expecting to think of it next week. He is not in favor of the measure, and does not wish to move in the matter unless a majority of the counties expressly desire it. Now, you have said a great many things in your article which you ought not to have said. You have done injustice to all the parties whom you have mentioned. You have hollered wolf when there was nothing present but the mildest sort of a lamb, and the properest course for you to pursue will be to screw down your throttle-valve and dry up. I have a strong inclination to continue this subject a while longer, but I promised to go down in town and get drunk with Curry and Trumbo and Tom Bedford and Gillespie before I leave for Virginia. My promises are sacred. I have also to receive a petition from the citizens of Carson, with several thousand names on it, requesting me to extend my visit here a few years longer. It affords me great pleasure to state that several hundred sheets of this petition are covered with the autographs of intelligent and beautiful ladies. Territorial Enterprise, February 19, 1863 Ye Sentimental Law Student Editor's Enterprise I found the following letter, or valentine, or whatever it is, lying on the summit where it had been dropped unintentionally, I think. It was written on a sheet of legal cap, and each line was duly commenced within the red mark which traversed the sheet from top to bottom. Solon appeared to have had some trouble getting his effusion started to suit him. He had begun it, Know all men by these presents, and scratched it out again. He had substituted, Now at this day comes the plaintiff by his attorney, and scratched that out also. He had tried other sentences of like character, and gone on obliterating them, until, through much sorrow and tribulation, he achieved the dedication which stands at the head of his letter, and to his entire satisfaction I do cheerfully hope. But what a villain a man must be to blend together the beautiful language of love and the infernal phraseology of the law in one and the same sentence. I know but one of God's creatures who would be guilty of such depravity as this. I refer to the unreliable. I believe the unreliable to be the very lawyer's cub who sat upon the solitary peak all soaked in beer and sentiment, and concocted the insipid literary hash I am talking about. The handwriting closely resembles his semi-Chinese tarantula tracks. Sugarloaf Peak, February 14, 1863 To the loveliness to whom these presents shall come, greeting. This is a lovely day, my own Mary. Its unencumbered sunshine reminds me of your happy face, and in the imagination the same doth now appear before me. Such sights and scenes as this ever remind me, the party of the second part, of you, my Mary, the peerless party of the first part. 
the view from the lonely and segregated mountain peak of this portion of what is called and known as creation with all and singular the hereditaments and appurtenances thereunto appertaining and belonging is inexpressively grand and inspiring and i gaze and gaze while my soul is filled with holy delight and my heart expands to receive thy spirit presence as aforesaid above me is the glory of the sun around him float the messenger clouds ready alike to bless the earth with gentle rain or visit it with lightning and thunder and destruction far below the said sun and the messenger clouds aforesaid lying prone upon the earth in the verge of the distant horizon like the burnished shield of a giant mine eyes behold a lake which is described and set forth in maps as the sink of carson nearer in the great plain i see the desert spread abroad like the mantle of a colossus glowing by turns with the warm light of the sun herein before mentioned or darkly shaded by the messenger clouds aforesaid flowing at right angles with said desert and adjacent thereto i see the silver and sinuous thread of the river commonly called carson which winds its tortuous course through the softly tinted valley and disappears amid the gorges of the bleak and snowy mountains a simile of man leaving the pleasant valley of peace and virtue to wander among the dark defiles of sin beyond the jurisdiction of the kindly beaming sun aforesaid and about said sun and the said clouds and around the said mountains and over the plain and the river aforesaid there floats a purple glory a yellow mist as airy and beautiful as the bridal veil of a princess about to be wedded according to the rites and ceremonies pertaining to and established by the laws or edicts of the kingdom or principality wherein she doth reside and whereof she hath been and doth continue to be a lawful sovereign or subject ah my mary it is sublime it is lovely i have declared and made known and by these presents do declare and make known unto you that the view from sugar-loaf peak as herein before described and set forth is the loveliest picture with which the hand of the creator has adorned the earth according to the best of my knowledge and belief so help me god given under my hand and in the spirit presence of the bright being whose love has restored the light of hope to a soul once groping in the darkness of despair on the day and year first above written signed solon lycurgus law student and notary public in and for the said county of story and territory of nevada to miss mary links virginia and may the laws have her in their holy keeping mark twain territorial enterprise february nineteenth eighteen sixty three some text of this article has not been recovered local column la plata ore company the company was organized under a deed of trust and has been steadily at work with scarce any intermission since the first of may eighteen sixty one under the general superintendence of the president colonel w h howard the claim is believed to comprise some of the finest ledges in the virginia and gold hill range and from present appearances it looks as if the company were about to commence realizing the reward of their long and well-bestowed labor as in addition to the ledges already noticed 
the top of a fine ledge has already been uncovered on the west side of the claim, where the chimney ranging with the butler's peak and Mount Davidson ledges crops out. THE CHINA TRIAL We were there yesterday, not because we were obliged to go, but just because we wanted to. The more we see of this aggravated trial, the more profound does our admiration for it become. It has more phases than the moon has in a chapter of the almanac. It commenced as an assassination. The assassinated man neglected to die, and they turned it into assault and battery. After this the victim did die, whereupon his murderers were arrested and tried yesterday for perjury. They convicted one Chinaman, but when they found out it was the wrong one, they let him go, and why they should have been so almighty particular is beyond our comprehension. Then in the afternoon the officers went down and arrested Chinatown again for the same old offense, and put it in jail. But what shape the charge will take this time no man can foresee. The chances are that it will be about a standoff between arson and robbing the mail. Captain White hopes to get the murderers of the Chinaman hung one of these days, and so do we, for that matter, but we do not expect anything of the kind. You see, these Chinamen are all alike, and they cannot identify each other. They mean well enough, and they really show a disinterested anxiety to get some of their friends and relatives hung, but the same misfortune overtakes them every time. They make mistakes and get the wrong man with unvarying accuracy. With a zeal in behalf of justice which cannot be too highly praised, the whole Chinese population have accused each other of this murder, each in his regular turn, but fate is against them. They cannot tell each other apart. There is only one way to manage this thing with strict equity. Hang the gentle Chinamen promiscuously, until justice is satisfied. THE CONCERT we shall always guard against insinuating that the citizens of Virginia are not filled with a fondness for music, after what we saw at Mr. Griswold's concert last night. The house was filled from dome to cellar. We speak figuratively, since there was neither dome nor cellar to the house, with people who entirely appreciated the performance and testified pleasure by frequent and hearty applause. The concert was a notable credit to the talent of Virginia, and we think we speak the public desire when we ask for another like it. Mr. James Gilmore, a very youthful-looking poet, recited a martial poem whereof himself was the author. It was received with great applause. We only heard five of the songs set. Territorial Enterprise, February 17th through 22nd, 1863 Silver Bars, How Assayed we propose to speak of some silver bars which we have been looking at, and to talk science a little also in this article, if we find that what we learned in the latter line yesterday has not escaped our memory. The bars we allude to were at the banking-house of Paxton Thornburg, and were five in number. They were the concentrated result of portions of two eight-day runs of the Hoosier State Mill on Potosi Rock. The first of the bricks bore the following inscription, which is poetry stripped of flowers and flummery, and reduced to plain common sense. Number 857, Potosi Gold and Silver Mining Company, Theol and Company, Assayers. 688.48 ounces, gold, O two O fine, silver, 962 fine, gold, $572.13, 
silver one thousand two hundred and twenty nine dollars and forty seven cents bars number eight thirty six and number eight fifty eight bore about the same inscription save that their values differed of course the one being worth one thousand eight hundred dollars and the other a fraction under one thousand three hundred dollars the two largest bars were still in the workshop and had not yet been assayed one of them weighed nearly a hundred pounds and one was worth about three thousand dollars and the other which contained over nine hundred ounces was worth in the neighborhood of two thousand dollars the weight of the whole five bars may be set down in round numbers at three hundred pounds and their value at say ten thousand pounds those are about the correct figures we are very well pleased with the hoosier state mill and the potosi mine we think of buying them from the contemplation of this result of two weeks mill and mining labor we walked through the assaying rooms in the rear of the banking-house with mr theall and examined the scientific operations there with a critical eye we absorbed much obtuse learning and we propose to give to the ignorant the benefit of it after the amalgam has been retorted at the mill it is brought here and broken up and put into a crucible along with a little borax of the capacity of an ordinary plug hat this vessel is composed of some kind of pottery which stands heat like a salamander the crucible is placed in a brick furnace in the midst of a charcoal fire as hot as the one which the three scriptural hebrew children were assayed in when the mass becomes melted it is well stirred in order to get the metals thoroughly mixed after which it is poured into an iron brick mould such of the base metals as were not burned up remain in the crucible in the form of a sing the next operation is the assaying of the brick a small chip is cut from each end of it and weighed each of these is enveloped in lead and placed in a little shallow cup made of bone ashes called a cupel and put in a small stoneware oven enclosed in a sort of parlor-stove furnace where it is cooked like a lost sinner the lead becomes oxidized and is entirely absorbed by the pores of the cupel any other base metals that may still linger in the precious stew meet the same fate or go up the chimney the gold and silver come from the cupel in the shape of a little button and in a state of perfect purity this is weighed once more and what it has lost by the cooking process determines the amount of base metal that was in it and shows exactly what proportion of it the bar contains the lost weight was base metal you understand and was burned up or absorbed by the cupel the scales used in this service are of such extremely delicate construction that they have to be shut up in a glass case since a breath of air is sufficient to throw them off their balance so sensitive are they indeed that they are even affected by the particles of dust which find their way through the joinings of the case and settle on them they will figure the weight of a piece of metal down to the thousandth part of a grain with stunning accuracy you might weigh a mosquito here and then pull one of his legs off and weigh him again and the scales would detect the difference the smallest weight used the one which represents the thousandth part of a grain is composed of aluminum which is the metallic base of common clay and is the lightest metal known to science it looks like an imperceptible atom clipped from the invisible corner of a piece of paper whittled down to an impossible degree of sharpness as it were and they handle it with pincers like a hairpin 
but with an excuse for this interesting digression we will return to the silver button again after the weighing melting and reweighing of it has shown the amount of base metal contained in the brick the next thing to be done is to separate the silver and gold in it in order to find out the exact proportions of these in the bar the button is placed in a mattress filled with nitric acid an elongated glass bottle or tube shaped something like a bell-clapper which is half buried in a box of hot sand they called it a sand-bath on top of the little cupel furnace where all the silver is boiled out of said button and held in solution when in this condition it is chemically termed nitrate of silver this process leaves a small pinch of gold dust in the bottom of the mattress which is perfectly pure its weight will show the proportion of pure gold in the bar of course the silver in solution is then precipitated with muriatic acid or something of that kind we are not able to swear that this was the drug mentioned to us although we feel very certain that it was and restored to metal again its weight by the mosquito scales will show the proportion of silver contained in the brick you know now just here our memory is altogether at fault we cannot recollect what in the world it is they do with the dry cups we asked a good many questions about them asking questions is our regular business but we have forgotten the answers it is all owing to lager beer we are inclined to think though that after the silver has been precipitated they cook it a while in those little chalky-looking dry cups in order to turn it from fine silver dust to a solid button again for the sake of convenient handling but we cannot begin to recollect anything about it we said they made a separate assay of the chips cut from each end of a bar now if these chips do not agree if they make different statements as to the proportions of the various metals contained in the bar it is pretty good proof that the mixing was not thorough and the brick has to be melted over again this occurrence is rare however this is all the science we know what we do not know is reserved for private conversation and will be liberally inflicted upon anybody who will come here to the office and submit to it after the bar has been assayed it is stamped as described in the beginning of this dissertation and then it is ready for the mint science is a very pleasant subject to dilate upon and we consider that we are as able to dilate upon it as any man that walks but if we have been guilty of carelessness in any part of this article so that our method of assaying as set forth herein may chance to differ from mr thales we would advise that gentleman to stick to his own plan nevertheless and not go to following ours his is as good as any known to science if we have struck anything new in our method however we shall be happy to hear of it so that we can take steps to secure to ourselves the benefits accruing therefrom territorial enterprise february twenty fifth eighteen sixty three local column the unreliable this poor miserable outcast crowded himself into the fireman's ball night before last and glared upon the happy scene with his evil eye for a few minutes he had his coat buttoned up to his chin which is the way he always does when he has no shirt on as soon as the managers found out he was there they put him out of course they had better have allowed him to stay though for he walked straight across the street with all his vicious soul aroused and climbed in at the back window of the supper-room 
and gobbled up the last crumb of the repast provided for the guests before he was discovered. This accounts for the scarcity of provisions at the fireman's supper that night. Then he went home and wrote a particular description of our ball costume, with his usual meanness, as if such information could be of any consequence to the public. He never vouchsafed a single compliment to our dress, either, after all the care and taste we had bestowed upon it. We despise that man. MANY CITIZENS In another column of this paper will be found a card signed by MANY CITIZENS OF CARSON, stating that the county commissioners of Ormsby County have removed the sheriff from office and appointed someone else in his stead. They also ask whether the commissioners really possess the power to remove the sheriff or the governor of the territory or the president of the United States at pleasure. This is all well enough, except that in the face of our well-known ability in the treatment of ponderous questions of unwritten law, these citizens have addressed their inquiries to the chief editor of this paper, a man who knows no more about legal questions than he does about religion, and so saturated with self-conceit is he, that he has even attempted in his feeble way to answer the propositions set forth in that note. We ignore his reply entirely, and, notwithstanding the disrespect which has been shown us, we shall sink private pique for the good of our fellow-men, and proceed to set their minds at rest on this question of power. We declare that the county commissioners do possess the power to remove the officers mentioned in that note, at pleasure. The organic act says so in so many words. We invite special attention to the first clause of section two of that document, where this language is used, if we recollect rightly. The executive power and authority in and over said territory of Nevada shall be vested in a governor and other officers, who shall hold their offices for four years, and until their successors shall be appointed and qualified, unless sooner removed by the county commissioners. That is explicit enough, we take it. Other officers means any or all other officers, of course, else such dignitaries as it was intended to refer to would have been specifically mentioned. Consequently, the President of the United States, and the Governor and Sheriff being officers, come within the provisions of the law, and may be shoved out of the way by the Commissioners as quietly as they would abate a nuisance. We might enlarge upon this subject until Solomon himself couldn't understand it, but we have settled the question and we despise to go on scattering pearls before swine who have not asked us for them. In thus proving by the organic act, and beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the county commissioners are invested with power to remove the sheriff, or the governor, or the president, whenever they see fit to do so, we have been actuated solely by a love of the godlike principles of right and justice, and a desire to show the public what an unmitigated ass the chief editor of this paper is. Having succeeded to our entire satisfaction, we transfer our pen to matters of local interest, although we could prove, if we wanted to, that the county commissioners not only possess the power to depose the officers above referred to, but to hang them also if they feel like it. When people want a legal opinion in detail, they must address their communications to us individually and not to irresponsible smatterers, like the chief editor. THE FIREMAN'S BALL, 
about seventy couples assembled at Topliffe's Theatre, night before last, upon the occasion of the annual ball of Virginia Engine Company No. 1. The hall was ablaze, from one end to the other, with flags, mirrors, pictures, etc., and when the crowd of dancers had got into violent motion, and thoroughly fuddled with plain quadrilles, the looking-glasses multiplied them into a distracted and countless throng. Verily the effect was charming to the last degree. The decoration of the theatre occupied several days, and was done under the management of a committee composed of Messrs. Brokaw, Robinson, Champney, Claracy, Garvey, and Sands, and they certainly acquitted themselves with marked ability. The floor was covered with heavy canvas, and we rather liked the arrangement, but the wind got under it and made it fill and sag like a circus-tent, insomuch that it impeded the Varsovian practice and caused the ladies to complain occasionally. Benham's People's Band made excellent music, however they always do that. We have not one particle of fault to find with the ball. The managers kept perfect order and decorum, and did everything in their power to make it pass pleasantly to all the guests. They succeeded. But of all the failures we have been called upon to chronicle, the supper was the grandest. It was bitterly denounced by nearly everybody who sat down to it—officers, firemen, men, women, and children. Now, the supposition is that somebody will come out in a card and deny this, and attribute base motives to us. But we are not to be caught asleep, or even napping this time. We have got all our proofs at hand and shall explode at anybody who tries to show that we cannot tell the truth without being actuated by unworthy motives. Chief Engineer Peasley and Officer Birdsall said that the supper contract was for a table supplied with everything the market could afford, and in such profusion that the last who came might fare as well as the first, the contractor to receive a stipulated sum for each supper furnished and they also say that no part or portion of that contract was entirely fulfilled. The entertainment broke up about four o'clock in the morning, and the guests returned to their homes well satisfied with the ball itself, but not with the supper. Smallpox. From Carson we learn, officially, that Dr. Monckton has been sent down to Pine Nut Springs to look after some cases of smallpox, reported as existing among the Washoe Indians there. It is said that three men and a Mahala are inflicted with it. The doctor intends vaccinating their attendants and warning the other Indians to keep away. Captain Joe says one of the Indians caught the disease from a shirt given him by a white man. We do not believe any man would do such a thing as that maliciously, but at the same time any man is censurable who is so careless as to leave infected clothing lying about where these poor devils can get a hold of it. The commonest prudence ought to suggest the destruction of such dangerous articles. Schoolhouse. An addition is being built to the public schoolhouse, and will be completed and put in order for occupation as soon as possible. Mr. Melville's school has increased to such an extent that the old premises were found insufficient to accommodate all the pupils. As soon as the new building is completed, the school will be divided into three departments, advanced, intermediate, and infant, and one of these will occupy it. Trial to-day. 
Sam Ingalls, who attempted the life of Pease the other day with a bowie knife, will be up before Judge Atwill today on a charge of drawing a deadly weapon. A case of this kind should never be allowed to pass without a severe rebuke, and if the evidence finds the prisoner guilty, he will probably catch it today. If it does not, why, no one wants him rebuked, of course. DISTRICT COURT the testimony for both sides in the case of the burning moscow versus madison company was completed yesterday and the lawyers will begin to throw hot shot at each other this morning which is our military way of saying that the arguments of counsel herein will be commenced today a great deal of interest is manifested in this suit and the lobbies will be crowded during its trial suicide we learn by a note received last night per Langton's Express that a German named John Meyer, a wood dealer in Downeyville, committed suicide there on the night of the 19th instant by blowing his brains out with a pistol. The cause is supposed to have been insanity. Telegraphic. A message for S. S. Harmon remains uncalled for at the telegraph office. Territorial Enterprise, February 26, 1863. Last portion of mock obituary of the unreliable. First portion of original text not recovered. Repertorial. He became a newspaper reporter and crushed truth to earth and kept her there. He bought and sold his own notes and never paid his board. He pretended great friendship for Gillespie in order to get to sleep with him. Then he took advantage of his bedfellow, and robbed him of his glass eye and his false teeth. Of course he sold the articles, and Gillespie was obliged to issue more county scrip than the law allowed, in order to get them back again. The unreliable broke into my trunk at Washoe City, and took jewelry and fine clothes and things worth thousands and thousands of dollars. He was present, without invitation, at every party and ball and wedding which transpired in Carson during thirteen years. But the last act of his life was the crowning meanness of it. I refer to the abuse of me in the Virginia Union of last Saturday, and also to a list of Langton's staged passengers sent to the same paper by him, wherein my name appears between those of Sam Chung and Sam Lee. This is his treatment of me, his benefactor. That malicious joke was his dying atrocity. During thirteen years he played himself for a white man. He fitly closed his vile career by trying to play me for a Chinaman. He is dead and buried now, though. Let him rest. Let him rot. Let his vices be forgotten. But let his virtues be remembered. It will not infringe much upon any man's time. Mark Twain. P.S. By private letters from Carson, since the above was in type, I am pained to learn that the unreliable, true to his unnatural instincts, came to life again in the midst of his funeral sermon, and remains so to this moment. He was always unreliable in life. He could not even be depended upon in death. The shrouded corpse shoved the coffin lid to one side, rose to a sitting posture, cocked his eye at the minister, and smilingly said, "'Oh, let up, Dominie! This is played out, you know. Loan me two bits.' The frightened congregation rushed from the house, and the unreliable followed them with his coffin on his shoulder. He sold it for two dollars and a half, and got drunk at a bit-house on the proceeds. He is still drunk. 
Territorial Enterprise, between February 17th and 26th, 1863. Local Column. Apologetic. We are always happy to apologize to a man when we do him an injury. We have wounded William Smiley's feelings, and we will heal them up again or bust. We said in yesterday's police record that Bill—excuse the familiarity, William—was drunk. We lied. It is our opinion that Sam Weatherhill did, too, for he gave us the statement. We have gleaned the facts in the case, though, from William himself, and at his request we hasten to apologize. His offense was mildness itself. He only had a pitched battle with another man and resisted an officer. That was all. Come up, William, and take a drink. End of section 4